Today I want to look at a very important passage, and the reason that passage is so important is because it kind of serves as the base to everything that we say that we stand for, and honestly, it's why we've gathered here. There was a tenant in agnostic uh, heresy. That's what the Colossian church was up against, okay? They were running, the, they were running up against agnostics, people who had in the church uh, shown up, and they were very impressive with their well-read manner, their gift of the oratory. They were very flowery with their talk. But, but there was the, this agnostic tenet was, it was okay to have faith as a beginner, but the pearl of wisdom, the pearl, the thing that we're after is knowledge, okay? When you are rooted in knowledge, you can become an academic, but it doesn't mean that you become deeply rooted in faith as a believer in Jesus, amen? Okay, so... This is the basis of what we're going to discuss today. We have several verses that we need to get through. I'm not going to read them all for the sake of time, but I am going to hint in one, four, or five uh, portion of Colossians 2, and there's a word I want you to get familiar with. It's rooted. Say that word, rooted. rooted. It is the word that Paul uses, and it's talking about where we plant ourselves, where we abide, where we take up residence. There's an example, and Jesus taught in story all the time. I want to use an example of Jesus' ministry through Luke that kind of personifies what we're going to look at today in the book of Colossians. It is said by one commentator that uh, Jesus, in, in his commentation, his ministry of Luke, his, his ministry was to seek and save the lost, but his methodology was to break bread with others. One commentator said of the entire book of Luke, you can find Jesus either coming from a meal, going to a meal, or having a meal. In Luke 7, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner, I want to be clear about that, Jesus often dined with the tax collectors and the... Say that louder. When we talk about a tax collector, we're talking about a male, a male who had sold out his own countrymen. He was a Jew who had given his heart and soul to Rome and was making and taxing oftentimes his countrymen, the Jew, by 50%. And then his own tax was allowed to be on on top of that, and it was protected by the spear of Rome. So he could tax his brother on top of that Roman tax like 80% if he was just feeling like it that day. He was the scourge of their male society. The scourge of the female society was the sinner or a a female who sinned was nine times out of ten focused on sexual sin. So this is a prostitute. So a woman in the house who was a prostitute found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who touches him. She's a sinner. Now, before we go on to Jesus' reply, I want to point out, first of all, the most compelling part of this story for me. How did this woman end up in this house in the first place? How did a sinner end up in the house of a dignitary? How did she get in? If... It wasn't by Jesus' appointment. He's invited by this, by this Pharisee, and when they notice her, because they would have noticed her, 
Jesus must have allowed it, and thus the guest, the, the master of ceremonies, Simon the Pharisee, must have had to allow it based on his guest. But here she stands with an alabaster jar weeping over the feet of Jesus, the prostitute. She should have never been there. But here's the thing that's amazing about this woman and her heart. She recognizes precisely who she is. She recognizes precisely where she's not welcome, and she doesn't care. She's willing to get a little undignified because she is following and has a faith that Jesus loves her, accepts her, and will give her hope. Amen? How many of you are willing to be a little undignified for the sake of the message of Jesus? Just to be close to Him, you'll go to places where you're otherwise not welcome because you trust that He loves you, accepts you, and no matter what you've done... He offers you hope and life abundant. See, this is the woman's approach to Jesus. And I want to say this. One commentator said it like this, that she being a prostitute, only knowing to physically touch a man, simply responded to Jesus the only way she's ever responded to a man. She weeps at his feet and wipes her tears with his hair. Jesus replied and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and another 50. Since they could not pay it back, uh, he graciously forgave them both. One was about a two years debt, one was about a week. So which of them love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave him more. Jesus, and I, I tend to believe that Jesus has a little bit of sarcasm in his response. You've answered correctly. You got it. You've answered correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. That was commonplace. In a, when you have dirt for roads, it is common for the people who are having you over for dinner to offer water at the front just so you can wash your feet and you don't carry the dirt into their home. He said, You offered me no water for my feet, but yet... She, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which was formal greeting of affection in that day. But she has not stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't give me a blessing. But she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she's loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. They said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this man that he can forgive sins? And he turned to her, Jesus to the woman. He said, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, this peace is very important because it is the crux. It is a staining power. It is an evidence of one who is in Christ. Paul, at the end of last week's sermon, we said he has become a minister of reconciliation. He had given the church at Colossians the ministry of reconciliation and thus any New Testament church to follow the ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because the message of the gospel is that Jesus died to forgive us for what we deserved. And he took what we deserve so that we could be reconciled to God. And thus we have ministry to give that to someone else. We have opportunity to give that hope away. Why? 
Because in a world where we are told to be Simon the Pharisee, the only way we find ourselves at the feet of Jesus, if we accept, we're the prostitute. Hello? In a world where we are told to make ourselves that much more impressive above the surface, be well-read and be flowery in your speech. Paul, who said, I was the Hebrew of the Hebrews, who had accomplished all of that in Judaism, in human tradition. He had accomplished all of that and was famous and had the pedigree to show it. He said, I'd give it all up again for one day with Christ. I was the Hebrew of Hebrews, but yet I was also the chief of sinners. I was the chief of self-worship. I was only about because I was told to be about myself. And in a world where you're told to be about yourself, it's really somewhat hollow. It's really not that rooting. Paul says in the close of chapter 1, I'm paraphrasing, as we move into chapter 2, he says, I have the ministry of reconciliation, but I am a minister of the gospel because I've become its servant and I suffer gladly for it. Why would Paul exchange a life as Saul of Tarsus, where he's famous and fortunate and everyone knows his name, to simply become someone who runs up against calamity in every place that he goes and will eventually die a martyr's death for the sake of the gospel, if, if it weren't worth dying for. He says, look, I placed myself in that same place that the world had taught me. But in the end, it wasn't enough. I had everything that the world says is important above the surface, but I had nothing beneath it. I had to learn this and I, I was, I had to learn this and I saw this practically for myself as we get into the text today. A few years ago, I came home and it had rained while I was gone for about a week and a half very heavily. I was surveying my land and all, I was surveying the yard and all that needed to be done to landscape and manicure it. And I noticed something. I noticed in my flower bed some weeds had grown. And they were very tall and impressive. I had never seen weeds like this. I grew up in Florida. They didn't exist where I'm from. Apparently, they're native to Middle Tennessee. I don't know. I have a picture. How many of you know this thing? You seen this? Okay, these had showed up in my garden and one was taller than me. So its stem was really strong. It has those prickly hairs on it. You know what I'm talking about? This means yes? Okay. All right. Big flowery leaves. And so I saw this monster and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to go uproot this thing. So I go and get a shovel and I get some trimmers and I'm like, I'm going to chop this thing down and try to dig. I don't know how, how long it's going to take. This might be a day's work just to get this out of my garden. But before I started chopping and before I started digging, I just happened to touch the base just to see. I wanted to know how deep it went. I grabbed it, felt that prick of the hairs, and I straight out of the ground. And I looked at the root system, and it was very shallow, it was short, there was nothing to it. And I chopped into the stem, and it was hollow. And though it looked flowery and impressive on the exterior, there was nothing beneath the surface and there was nothing to its core. This is what Paul is talking about when he's saying, I was the Hebrew of the Hebrews, but I left it all so that I would have one day with Christ here in these chains. I would die for this again because now I am rooted deeply in the faith that I have in Christ. And now I have a core that is worth something. I have substance, he says, in Jesus. 
In Colossians 2, verse 2, he says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches and complete understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God, which is Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this to you so that no one will be deceived with arguments that sound reasonable. Listen, a tenet of agnostic faith was... It's okay, Junior, that you have that faith, but if you want the real pearl of wisdom, your pursuit should be knowledge. He was saying, I don't want you to be deceived like Justin was pulling up the weed in his garden. (laughs) Though it may look impressive on the exterior, there's nothing beneath the surface. For I may be absent in the body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered or disciplined you are and the strength you have in your faith in Christ. Listen to the words he used. Well-ordered, disciplined, and the strength you have in your faith in Christ. Notice he didn't say in your knowledge of Christ. Because when you have a faith that is strengthened, knowledge like of the law and the traditions of the Old Testament and the prophecies about a coming Christ and a Messiah become fulfilled and they're complete And then you look at the the actions of the New Testament church and during the apostolic age, persecutions running rampant in the church and people are dying for the cause of Jesus. And you go, why would they give their lives? Because it's worth dying for. It only makes it rich. It only makes it that much more enhancing, that much more deep. He says our first point today, do not be deceived. I've been wrecked with this message all week because I've been looking at how important this text is really is to who we are. And I've watched as I've heard people talk with post after post on Facebook like Anthony Bourdain was their best friend. And I'm not trying to make light of his death. What I'm trying to point out is this. He was only preceded by Kate Spade. Two people who have this incredible talent. Anthony Bourdain was a a wordsmith. Any writer needs to look at what he did and go, man, that guy was really gifted. But here's the problem. The problem is his gifts were on display and they were loud and impressive, but we, he was a tormented individual at the heart of who he was. We don't know how deep the roots go or how hollow the core was, but it was enough to force him to take his own life early. And everyone is mourning that. And I go, why did the church not respond? Where was the church in this really gifted writer's life? Where was the message of Jesus in his heart? Because someone that gifted could be an asset to the kingdom. Where was he? Maybe, maybe he had been shared faith repeatedly. I don't know. Maybe he had just dis, just pushed it off himself repeatedly. I don't know that to be true, but I do know this. I wonder if the faith of the church was so weak in his life that he decided he didn't want it. He says, be rooted in your faith in Christ, not your knowledge thereof. We have too often in the Western church made knowledge our pearl, just like agnosticism was. And when life happens, because listen, life will happen. We're in a world that is just temporal. Paul goes on and says it's empty. It's fleeting. James said it is like a vapor. But yet, Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity has been written on our very heart. What happens 
to the church when people of the church get depressed. I talked with a man earlier today at the other campus before I got here. I said, hey, have you ever experienced depression? I have. How did the church respond? Like I was a leper. We don't know what to do with that. Charles Spurgeon, icon of the faith, right? Someone who led to the onslaught of revival in all of the greater United Kingdom early before the turn of the century. At 18, takes over pastorate, and his gift of the oratory, his gift of writing, was being used to save masses in England at that time and beyond. He said this, openly and honestly, repeatedly, about his long bouts himself with depression. Hello? Serve God with all your might while the candle is burning, and then when it goes out for a season, you will have less to regret. Be content to be nothing, for that is what you are. When, you are, when your own emptiness painfully forces itself upon your consciousness to where you can't deny it, chide yourself that you ever dreamed of being full in anything but the Lord Jesus. Spurgeon's hinting at something, the dark side of ministry. Do not be deceived by the flowery appearances, but be rooted in the faith that can be found solely in Jesus. Because James said we are to face every trial we face with joy. Why? Because those trials are intended to make the roots grow deeper in your walk with the Lord. They are to help you understand how to persevere and they're to help you become perfected in the image of Christ who is the world's hope. Not you, not me. Amen? So can I say a question? How many of you have grown? You're not who you were 10 years ago. Hands raised. How many of you grew more because of trial than you did easy street? Hands raised. Amen. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, brothers and sisters, because Paul said, I suffer for the sake of the gospel gladly. So that they will not be deceived. Number two, he says, be rooted. Be rooted in your faith. Being built up that you not be taken captive or deceived. We shouldn't be deceived by flowery yet empty talk. And we should have a heart that says we're not going to allow those around us to do the same. Here's the thing that I want to point to John 15. It's really important. John 15 says it like this, that we're to abide or take up residency in Christ, in our faith in Him. And from there, build. But take up residence in Him. Do not leave, do not walk away. He also says that same chapter, because if you align yourself with me, the world will hate you. You are in a world that is temporal and fleeting. But you had eternity written on your heart. Let me read from Paul Chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 6. So then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live in Him, continue to abide in Him, being rooted and built up in Him and established in faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. 
Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of this world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Jesus, and you have been filled with him who is the head over every ruler and authority. What is he saying here? He's asking that we be rooted not in the things about Jesus, but in Jesus himself. That we never outgrow the cross. That we like the prostitute, not the one who holds the formal dinner as a dignitary and walks in in full regalia, welcoming our guests as if they, we are someone they should worship. And with all of our knowledge and all of our thought and all of our well-readness and the way that we speak, not the appearance of something flowery with nothing beneath, but someone who is so broken at the feet of Jesus because I know very much who I am cannot lift my head to look upon him as my tears wash his feet. That I find myself willing to be undignified because I wasn't invited to this environment, but I walked in here because Jesus is here. And I just want the hope of being loved and accepted and brought into relationship with him. I need to take deep root in my relationship with Jesus, not my knowledge about some uh, figure that happened a long time ago who might have been cosmic based on the teachings of the Colossian heresy. We live in the West. No more important than for those of us in the West. Uh, You see this stage has been transformed. I cannot wait. I'm excited about all those who have given their time, effort. This place looks impressive. It's great. But look, this is only so that we can take the very important message of the gospel to the lives of children and their families that extend, that we are responsible for as the church of Jesus that surround us. Hello? Hello? This is extremely important. And I know the heart of every leader who is going to be leading in this. And I love this church for its heart because here's the thing. How many of you have been here long enough to see the church of the West do some manipulative things? All right. It's okay to admit that. Lightning's not coming. I grew up in Florida. I've seen some really manipulative things. I've seen at 4,000 degrees out, we stick kids in a, in a garage, shut the door, turn the heaters on and go, you think it's hot in here? I wish I was joking. We're not talking about the fact that these kids come from a broken world that is simply depressing, that leads people to the place of thinking, I can no longer take it, and they take their own life. We do not take the hope and abundant life of Jesus' message and rooted in what he did for us on the cross to them because we want to simply escape hell. It's not fire insurance. It's escaping self-worship and sin and the rebellious tendency that exists in every one of us. And by the way, yeah, I'm afraid of hell. I don't want to go there. But I have so much more than that in a relationship with Jesus. My faith is rooted in the fact that he took a kid who had no hope who had been told he was unlovable, and guess what? He gave him hope, and he proved that he was lovable. He took that kid and built up his faith. 
And it strengthened it to where he could see the value that his Savior had in him when he created him in his image before the foundation of the world. That's what I hope these children hear as they're here this week. That's what we need to be praying for, that they might have hope that they are valuable because they're created in the image of Jesus. And Jesus died for them just so he could reconcile them to himself. I want to read from Matthew 13 for a second. Jesus taught all the time in, in parable. Here's a few. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and left. When the plant sprouted and produced grain, the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? He said, an enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to pull them up? No. He said, when you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until harvest. And at that harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first. Tie them up, burn them, but collect the wheat into my barn. Yet Jesus gave another parable, verse 31. He presented another parable to them. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that birds of the sky can come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable. Then the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that when a woman took and mixed with 50 pounds of flour, it, it raised, it became leavened. What he's saying is this. How many of you have ever seen the picture of a mustard seed? I've got one. Here it is. Now, how many of you have ever seen, with your own eyes, a mustard plant? Here it is. A mustard plant is, has one of the smallest seeds, but when it is rooted in good soil, when it's rooted in good soil, when it takes root, it becomes one of the most wild-growing plants that exists tall enough for birds to perch in its branches and widespread enough that it is nearly impossible to uproot. It's, once it's there, it's almost impossible to get rid of. He says, my kingdom is like that mustard seed or mustard plant, that when it takes root and you allow yourself to root yourself in me and what I have done and my love and acceptance for you, the kingdom will pour out of you like a mustard plant that is uncontrollable. And wherever you go, you offer peace to those around you who are a part of a depressing and broken world who just don't know how to carry its weight any longer. When, when you will grow and trust me and the kingdom pours forth from you, it'll establish like branches for those who are hurting to come and perch under your wing. Hello? To come and perch in your branches. But be mindful. Because amongst the, the plants that I have planted, the liar has also thrown seeds of deception. There are those who are agents of the enemy who are seeking to tear down everything that I'm seeking to build up. And when they grow up together, they look rather similar. One has a deep-rooted system and one is very shallow and can be uprooted immediately. But we're not going to do that. We're, going to allow, we're not going to pull those up yet. We're going to allow the Lord to uproot those and sift as He needs and he'll separate the chaff from the wheat when it is time. But I want you to hear something about that truth. Their root system is low and every lie with it. 
So if you're here and you go, I'm just not good enough. No matter what I do, no matter how I try, nothing is ever enough. That's a lie. If you go, hey, I'm going to be there for everyone, but in the end, nobody is going to be there for me. That's a lie. As a low root base, it's not established. It's not real. But how many of us have watched people that we love, maybe even ourselves, maybe even ourselves, which is really hard to admit on a Sunday morning like this, that we have struggled ourselves in a depressing world with bouts of depression in our own flesh? How many of us have allowed the lies that are low-rooted, but they sound so impressive, to cripple us at times, hands raised? They're quickly uprooted. And when you allow people in your life to speak into your life, when you say to them, when, when someone who is struggling looks at you and says, I'm just not good enough, a brother or sister who you've given license to speak into you can look at you and go, that's just a lie. The truth is you are so loved, so valuable that you've been created in the image of God that he would die so that you wouldn't have to. Hello? And, and that's what it means to walk alongside one another, strengthened and built up so that we might have peace. Recognizing we're going to have time with trouble. One commentator said it like this. If you've never experienced depression in ministry, you've never experienced ministry. Sorry, that's the dark side of the reality, but we live in a time where we as the light are called to push back the darkness. And if you're never experiencing darkness, guess what? You're not around it enough. Four, we are to approach our faith with a sense of gratitude. Without this gratitude, like the prostitute, listen, we'll be quickly deceived because he who loves little was forgiven little. If you believe that you're Simon, the Pharisee, and your approach is to be flowery and impressive, listen, there's this shallow root system that exists in you because you don't know the depth to which Jesus forgave you. You don't know the rebellion and the depth and the hardness that was taken from you just how dark you actually were. If you believe that you were forgiven little, listen, you will also love little. But if you approach the Lord at a place of lacking dignity, crying in the dignitary's house, weeping at his feet, just hoping that he will yet again embrace you as you anoint his feet. You'll become rooted in your faith in him. You'll see those roots go deeper and deeper. You'll see from your life bud fruit and branches that others of the broken world can come and perch in. You'll become, listen, You'll become a minister of hope and reconciliation in a world that is dying to hear that truth. But this morning, without that gratitude, as a starting point, it's very difficult to see ourselves root and our ministry build. In closing, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper today. And I want to throw this statement up. We were all once sinners at Simon's table. We were all once the sinner at Simon's table. But my question is, do you in fact recognize it? Because when we come to the table, it's an opportunity every single time to do so with gratitude. It's with thanks. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Recognize that my body was broken 
so that yours wouldn't have to be. My blood was shed to atone for your rebellious tendencies in this broken and sinful world so that I could remove that from you and replace it with myself. You were all once, we were all once the prostitute that we read in Luke 7. Paul says, we were all sinners of whom I am chief. He's saying this humbly, but we've been forgiven. The prostitute's gratitude led to her weeping, and it was deeply rooted in a faith that Jesus loved and could forgive and accept her when nobody else in the world could. How many of you were grateful that Jesus showed up in a time when everyone else had turned their back on you? This is where our faith needs to start. Then, then and only then can we be built up by the knowledge that is rich in the Old Testament that leads to the prophecies that foretell of Jesus and we get reaffirmed. Then and only then can we look at what was done in the New Testament and we look at the blood-paved letters that the apostolic church wrote to us to encourage us and we go, I can continue. They gave their lives for it because it was worth dying for. What am I giving my life for? As you come to the table, this is the question we have to ask. They were deeply rooted in and built up, and they had a peace that they were willing to die for. Paul said, I would exchange fame and fortune for the peace again. So here it is. This morning, I want us to imagine as we come to the table as if Jesus has said it, and we play the part of one of two individuals. As we come to the table, do we come to the table like Simon and go, you know, that's great for someone else, but that's not me. I'm really not that bad. I'm kind of a good guy. I'm really well-read. I'm really impressive. You just need to know I'm kind of the jam, Justin. That's who I am. We come to the table and I'm like, yeah, Jesus, thank you for breaking the bread. Boom. Thanks for the drink. Boom. Dunk, dunk, gunk. Move on. Or do we come to the place where we're not entitled like Simon, but like the prostitute, we humbly come and go, I cannot believe you'd give yourself for me. Thank you again that you came to write what I never could. Thank you for coming to receive me who was rebellious towards you, who knew nothing other than to sin against you and to worship myself and write my mind to say that you're the only thing worth worshiping for. And thank you for making you Savior of my life and Lord of my heart. Thank you for being Someone that I could get undignified before and you accepted and loved just like you did the prostitute, the sinner. This morning, as we come to the table, my question is, will he find a church that is humbly and deeply grateful for his work on the cross for us as we look at those elements and remember what he's done, that it would only take the roots of our faith deeper into whom he is and what he's doing in your midst right now, no matter how dark or bleak it may seem, dispelling and uprooting the lies that are very shallow in who you are and giving you an opportunity to build up and be strengthened in your faith and in my faith. Amen? This morning, we have opportunity to remember whom Jesus is. But at the cross, who we were. And he loved us in spite of it.